Welcome to the Cover 2 Resources podcast series, a podcast series about addiction and addiction education. My name is Amy McNeil. I lost my brother Samuel to a heroin overdose on October 23, 2015. He was 28. As a family, we thought we were prepared to help Sam fight addiction, but we were painfully mistaken. My family founded Cover 2 Resources in memory of Sam. Our mission is to arm others with the knowledge needed to best support a loved one struggling with opioid addiction. The Cover 2 Resources podcast is an ongoing series in which we interview experts in the fight against opioid addiction. It is made possible through donations and sponsorships from concerned individuals or organizations. If you want to help in the fight against opioid addiction, please consider donating or sponsoring the Cover 2 podcast. Go to cover2.org for more information. This podcast is available on iTunes, Google Music, Stitcher, and via RSS feed. Simply search for the full name, Cover 2 Resources, on your platform of choice. Thank you for listening. Hi, this is Greg McNeil, founder of Cover 2 Resources, and I'm here today with Dr. Jeanette Molesky, addiction and recovery specialist who runs a practice in Hudson, Ohio. Doctor, welcome. Thank you, Greg. It's a pleasure to be here this morning. It's great to have you here. Dr. Molesky, can you share with our listeners how you happened to get into the field of addiction and treatment recovery? Well, Greg, that's a very interesting story. I am board certified in family practice. Uh, Approximately six years ago, I had a mother who came in on a Friday afternoon with her son who was addicted to heroin. And he had started with Percocet following an upper extremity injury and had been prescribed uh, opioids for approximately six months. And then his doctor said to him, I think you're addicted. I can't give you any more medicine. So he bought some Percocet off the street for a while and then found heroin to be much cheaper, much less expensive, and obviously became addicted. As a family physician, there was really nothing that I could do to help him at that point. He had no insurance. He had no financial resources. And I felt devastated to send him out on a cold Friday afternoon to basically do more heroin. And I decided in my heart that I would never let that happen again. So I got the information that I needed. I did the training that I needed to do. I received my special DEA certificate to be able to prescribe buprenorphine, also known as Suboxone, for treatment. And how long ago was this? It's about six years ago. Six years ago. Okay. And so from there, we started treating patients with opioid addiction and opioid dependence disorders. And it's been a very rewarding part of my practice. So you were also... Uh, back when Sam was going to school, you were uh, his primary care provider. I was. Yeah. And um, you've had a chance to kind of review some of his records uh, since um, uh, over the course of the last couple of weeks here. And what of what lessons would you say can be uh, found in, I think, you reviewed both his assessment at IBH as well as the assessment from the Boca House in Booker Tone, Florida. Um, any lessons that we could derive from uh, Sam's uh, Sam's records that might be uh, 
important for other families here? First of all, I'd like to say that I'm very sorry for the loss of your son. It's always very devastating to any family when they lose a child to something like addiction, something that we hope someday will be preventable. Um, I saw Sam for non-addiction issues. Um, I did review his records when he was treated for addiction. And the one thing that really stood out in my mind was the fact that he was primarily in abstinence-based treatment programs. And in my experience, I have found these programs just don't work. They're treating addiction as if it's a disease of willpower when we know that it's a chronic relapsing brain disease. The drugs literally hijack the brain, and yet we're asking people to treat it as if it's a disease of willpower. If we could treat everything based on willpower, we wouldn't have fat people. It's, it's a chronic disease of the brain, and we need to use evidence-based medicine, such as medicated-assisted treatment, and we really need people to understand that aspect of the disease. But the biggest issue that I saw was basically the degree that they went through to promote the abstinence-based therapy and not give him the medicated assisted treatment that I think could have benefited him. So if he were to come in to you today, you'd have an entirely different program for him. If he were under your care, he would get into medicated assisted uh, treatment, but you would start off with also something that's revolutionary and, and new, genetic testing. One of the things that we order on all of our patients is genetic testing, um, pharmacogenetic testing. And what this does is it allows us to look at the individual genetic makeup of each patient to see how they metabolize their medications or their drugs. Why is that important? Um, for instance, I did your PGT um, to see what genetic markers that you had that could be important if you were ever treated with pain medication or mm -hmm. antidepressants. Let me just jump in. Yes, I agreed to be your uh, a little bit of a guinea pig on uh, on this, and and you did the. I came in about a month ago, and you gave the swap to the the cheek, and they sent it away for testing. So now I get the test results here. And. Basically, we talked about this a little bit earlier, but basically you're pretty clean genetically. Most medications you are going to metabolize as a normal person would metabolize them. And you have a palette of uh, medications yes. that you test against. And in my case, you tested for opioids. Yes. Okay. And what was interesting was the only medication that had any genetic impact or would have any genetic impact was fentanyl. And you are a very slow metabolizer of fentanyl, which means if you received it as a patient, that it would stay in your system longer as an active ingredient or an active form of the drug than it would in a normal person, which would put you at more of a risk for an overdose or side effects from the medication. When you are given fentanyl, the fentanyl itself is the active ingredient and it metabolizes into non-active ingredients and you metabolize it very slowly. So one could 
make the uh, assumption there uh, that Sam, my, uh, my son, um, he died from a fentanyl, heavily, uh, heavily laced dose of uh, heroin, and it was uh, laced with fentanyl. And so one could make the assumption that had he known in advance, perhaps he, his radar could have been up for that type of thing. That's entirely possible. And the other thing to remember is that he may have had a dose that may not have been fatal to a person with normal metabolism. So we really don't know, but it's certainly something that we look at. So when patients come in for their second or third visit, we go over this genetic testing with them. We give them a copy of it so they can share it with any other physician that they're ever going to see in their lifetime. It's a one-time test because obviously your genes don't change. But it can be a game changer for someone who is in for opioid use disorder and perhaps at one point in their life they may be offered a methadone program. And there are patients because of the genetics who basically should never take methadone. And it's surprising the number that we find in just doing a screening for that. So we can tell them in the future, if you are ever in a situation where you may be in a methadone program, make sure your doctor sees this because this is something that you may not ever want to to take because of the risks. Does it also enable you to really dial in the exact dosage that you should prescribe for patients of opioids? Yes, it can for pain management. It's very important for that as well. Um, I had a very, very interesting lady who came in from another state who was on high doses of oxycodone, exceedingly high doses of oxycodone, and was still having pain. And it just didn't make any sense to me what was, was going on with her. And we did the genetic testing, and she was unable to metabolize oxycodone. So in that case, she had the parent drug, which was not giving her any pain relief, and it was not being metabolized into the active form of the drug that would have given her pain relief. So we switched her just to plain morphine, much, much lower dose, fewer side effects, and she's doing remarkably well. So this was a very much a game changer um, for this particular patient. Outstanding. Wow. So uh, let's move along to another topic, which is really big in Ohio, particularly in our area, and that is the shortage of beds for treatment. Now, um, what do you do for patients when, I guess, they assume that they need inpatient treatment and they're waiting for a bed? You've got a way to kind of help bridge that gap, don't you? We do. First of all, not every patient who has a heroin or opioid use disorder needs an inpatient bed. There's a lot of families out there, friends out there who think the only treatment is inpatient. And this is simply not true. We have, uh, we offer medicated assisted treatment. We use both the buprenorphine commonly known as Suboxone or Zubsolve or Bunivale. And we also offer Vivitrol which is an injection of naltrexone that basically blocks the receptors in the brain for 28 days. So even if a patient uses during that time, there's basically um, no high. Uh, They're not experiencing anything out of the, the ordinary, and they will soon figure out they're just wasting their money on, on buying drugs. And they can't overdose. And they can't overdose. 
beautiful thing. So you can get them by for a time. We though. can get them by for a, I have patients. I have many patients who have never are being successfully treated and have never been in an inpatient facility. Hmm. Many, the majority of my patients have never been in an inpatient facility. So for those people out there that are waiting weeks and weeks and weeks for a bed um, and continuing to use, you could offer them a solution, a either interim or long-term solution as an outpatient. Absolutely. How long does it take to get into medicated-assisted treatment with your program? In our particular practice, our goal is to get patients in the same or next day. The same or next day? Yes. Wow. And what are the steps they need to go through? They have to be some type of detox. Correct? Well, first of all, they need to call. We need to get a history. We need to make sure that they're going to be an appropriate patient for our practice. And probably 98% of the people who call are appropriate patients for our practice. Um, we gather some information. So when they come in, we have um, the beginning of the tools that we need to treat them. Um, for any of the buprenorphine products, they do have to be in some stage of withdrawal. And generally, we recommend no opioid use for 12 to 24 hours, depending on how much they're using uh, prior to uh, getting treatment. And we initiate treatment the same day that they come into our practice. For patients who want to try or to use the, for patients who want to use the Vivitrol, which is a non-opioid blocker, um, the time frame is a little bit longer for them to um, abstain from their uh, opioid or heroin use. But that's also, we have successfully used that on an outpatient basis as well. So if someone were to call your office today, how soon could they get in? Tomorrow. Outstanding. So you've integrated many best practices into your process, and I know you continue to refine your treatment process. Can you share some other best practices that you've found are particularly effective? I think it, as far as best practices, it really starts with the first visit with the patient. Obtaining that full history, doing the complete physical exam, explaining the program to the patient and the family and the friends. It's very important that we involve family and friends in the treatment process. We explain brain chemistry. We make sure that all of their questions are answered. We explain what our requirements are, what our goals are, uh, what to do if there is a problem, what to do if they have a question. I need to ask a follow-up here. I'm trying to envision how you incorporate family and friends in this process because that's that's really kind of um, foreign to me in, in terms of how that would happen. So can you describe that? It's very simple. When they call on their for their first appointment, we ask them to bring a friend or family member who is not addicted or is not dependent on drugs. They can be in recovery, but just not an active person, not a, not a person actively using drugs. Okay. And what role do those people then play in this um, It's process? a support person for them. It's somebody to help them manage their medication. It's somebody, there's a lot of information that we provide. And sometimes the patient doesn't grasp all of the information or there's some confu there could be some confusion with the information. So you have a third party there who can say, no, what the doctor said was this. 
And the doctor said, yes, you may have this, this feeling, you may have this craving. This is how she said to cope with it. It's a critical role. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. Hmm. So if uh, the new uh, patient came in and they had three people, a family member, a couple of friends, that'd be fine? We put them in the big room, yes. <laughs> That's great. That's quite refreshing, actually. Very good. Um, any other best practices to that you'd like to share? Um, in addition to the first visit, which is vitally important, the follow-up is also important. Um, we want to encourage them in their sobriety. We want to give them additional tools at every visit that they can use to maintain their sobriety. We want to address any problems, any stressors in their life that may lead them back to using drugs again. So every visit, we want to know what has happened since the last visit. What temptations have you had? How did you overcome those temptations that you had? What are you doing? What works for you? And to reinforce the good behavior with the patients. So what's the frequency of those follow-ups? How often are they scheduled? The first month, it can be... I will see you again tomorrow. I will see you in two days. It's very individualized regarding the history and the physical exam that we get um, on the patient. So it's very individualized care. It could be, I will see you in a week. Once patients are stable, we generally see them once a month. Okay. And how long do your patients stay in this program with you? Again, it's a very individualized process with each patient. If a patient previously has had multiple relapses, we may keep them on medicated assisted treatment for years, maybe even life, because the risk of them going off is relapsing and with potential fatality, and we don't want that to happen. Other patients who come in relatively soon after they realize they have a problem, these are people after a couple years that could probably be tapered off their drugs. Okay. So... To the best of your knowledge, um, are there any risks associated with being on, say, Vivitrol for life? And it's so new. Who, who, um, it's, who can look a, into a crystal ball? But I mean, Anytime we give a drug, we always look at what are the risks and what are the benefits. And obviously, we want the benefits to outweigh the risks. The risk of not taking medicine is always the risk of relapsing with the risk of a fatality, the risk of dying. That's the ultimate risk. So when we look on the, the grand scheme of things, the risk versus the benefits, we really know that the ultimate risk is death. So we always err on the side of life. Yeah. Okay. Now let's talk about some of the hurdles that you face in treating your patients. Perhaps one of the largest is with the insurance companies. Um, we have to obtain a prior authorization on almost everything we do. And I have a person that's almost full-time that does nothing but deal with insurance companies. And that's a tremendous burden on a small private practice. Um, it's the only disease state in the United States where we have to have special permission from the Department of Justice through the DEA to offer uh, medication that will help them maintain their recovery. 
We are subject to inspections by the DEA, by the Board of Pharmacy. Um, we have to apply, as I said, special licenses to treat these uh, this population of patients. And the government has basically made it very difficult for the average doctor to treat this population. Addiction is so rampant that it should be the easiest thing in the world for any doctor to treat. And instead, we've made it more difficult. Many barriers to entry, it would sound, exactly. for other physicians. And right now, there's a huge shortage a of huge physicians. Shortage. Yeah. Wow. Okay. Well, this has been really informative. What else would you like to share with our listeners? I believe the most important thing is that treatment is available and treatment can be very successful. That I don't believe there's a patient out there who can't be successfully treated. Treatment is hard work. It's hard for the physician and it's especially hard for the patient. You have to work hard at treatment. But to be successful in anything at life, you have to work hard. And this is too important not to put forth the effort. I know there's a lot of frustration with families. There's really a concern. What do we do? What shouldn't we do? Um, what is the best option? We're always willing to meet with the family members. We're willing to talk. If a family member wants to come in with their, their loved one with an addiction problem, we can sit down and discuss what the options are. And then they can make a decision in which direction they would like to proceed. But there is help. It doesn't have to be the way it is now. I need to ask you one more question. Thank sure. you, Doctor. Um, how important is the team in this whole process? And put it a little differently, can someone go it alone? Can one of your patients, can they go it alone? Or do they really need to surround themselves with a team? And again, it's a very individualized care that we provide for patients. I have had patients who have been addicted to heroin who want no one to know. Um, surprisingly, I have patients who've been addicted to heroin, their spouses don't know. Mm -hmm. And they do not want anyone in their family, in their work environment, any of their friends to know. And we make sure that they are um, matched with a very good counselor. And yes, I have had people successfully go it alone. So, but matched with a counselor. Matched with a counselor, yeah. absolutely. So, However, other people do very well with that that village. It takes a village support mm -hmm. where they have support coming from every direction. And for that population of people, that is what will work best for them. But again, it's very individualized. We make every effort not to incorporate what the patient tells us is important to them in the treatment that we provide. For their unique treatment program, for exactly. their unique needs. Yeah. Um, we have patients who come in who will say, I just got a job. I cannot miss one day of work. I'm on a point system or I will be fired. We will work with them for evening appointments, even on a weekend, if we have to, because that job is so important to them that even their addiction is, is secondary to them in their mind. So we will work with what's most important 
to them and still be able to initiate treatment. Okay. Final thoughts, doctor? I'd really like to thank you for having me here today and allowing me to share with your audience what is available, that there is hope for every person out there with an addiction problem, that inpatient therapy is not um, always necessary and frequently is not necessary. Outpatient therapy can be very successful. And I hope those that are listening can benefit from the information that um, I've provided and that we've shared with them today. And thank you so much for having me. Well, thank you, doctor. We've been visiting today with Dr. Jeanette Molesky, who runs a family medicine and addiction practice in Hudson, Ohio. I'm Greg McNeil, founder of Cover2 Resources. Thank you for joining us for this podcast. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of the Cover2 Resources podcast. This episode is a production of Cover 2 Resources and is made possible by listeners like you. With your support, the Cover 2 team can continue to research and broadcast these resources to others in need. If you'd like to donate or to sponsor a future podcast, please visit cover2.org. As always, thank you for listening. Together, we can make a difference in the opioid epidemic, one life at a time.